this cannot be explained by uh, changes in our genes because I mean that takes uh, hundreds of years to change the gene pool. So it has to be non-genetic. It has to be something in the environment that makes us mature earlier. And we simply don't know what it is. Hello, and a very warm welcome to your Actives Health Podcast, where every week we dive into EU health policy and bring you the latest health news from Europe. I'm Marta Iraola, and in this episode, we'll be talking about endocrine disrupting chemicals and how they affect children during the most important developmental years. To talk about it, we have a guest with us today, Dr. Anders Juhl. He's a pediatrician from Copenhagen, Denmark, and he's a specialist in pediatric endocrinology. He studies hormone diseases in children and possible factors that cause them. Could you explain a bit what are endocrine disrupting chemicals? Where can we find them and how can they affect us? Uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals is, is sort of an umbrella term. It, it, it covers hundreds of different chemicals that can influence hormone action in the body. And they can actually affect a lot of our own hormone and their action. Uh, so altogether, they're just called endocrine disrupting chemicals, even though they may have a variety of different effects. And these chemicals are widespread Uh, uh, found in the environment. So we are all exposed to many of them all the, t uh, all the time. So we find um, uh, some chemicals are what we call non-persistent. That means that we are exposed to them and then the body gets rid of them, with the, uh, clear them within the next 24 hours. That is a non-persistent. It doesn't stay long in the body. But at the same time, we are exposed daily So it means that the body sees these compounds all the time, even though we clear them rapidly from our body. Then there's another overall group of endocrine disrupting chemicals, which we call persistent chemicals. And these are the chemicals that are more, uh, that accumulate in the body, for instance, in fat tissue. And, and, and these are uh, chemicals that sometimes have been banned uh, many, many years ago, but we still find it in the environment uh, because it bioaccumulates in the, uh, in the animals and, and, and in the nature where we, and, and, and in humans. So that's why we still see chemicals that are not being produced uh, for 30 years. Uh, we still find them in our bodies, but that's the persistent ones. The, the, the focus of my research group has primarily been to look at uh, the non-persistent chemicals uh, Uh, so these are the like phthalates, plasticizers, and phenols like bisphenol A and parabens. And there we have found that many of these uh, chemicals, non-persistent chemicals, are present in almost 100% of the children. Uh, so when we go out in a public school and have a urine sample from a child and, or a blood sample, we find these chemicals in the majority of them. And how are they exposed to that? Why, why are all children exposed? Well, it's because it's found everywhere. It's in the clothing, uh, the clothes we wear. It's like, uh, uh, it's in paint. It's in, in, in floor material. Uh, it's in plastics. Uh, it's in food uh, and food packaging. So we get the chemicals inside our body through uh, what we eat. And we inhale it. It's in the air. 
and, and we also um, get it through our skin. And so there are many ways of being exposed. And what effects can we see in these children? Why are children especially sensitive to these chemicals? I think uh, if I start by asking why are children more uh, sensitive uh, compared to adults, I think uh, when, when they're exposed to endocrine disruptors, I think this is a matter of the uh, <clears throat> the importance of especially sex steroids. Uh, so it's like estradiol, estrogens and testosterone for the uh, developing child. In, in, a, in When you are a fetus within, uh, in, during pregnancy, hormones play a very important role on how you develop into a male infant or into a female infant. It's all about hormones and it's at quite low concentrations in the body. So when if you are exposed to hundreds of chemicals that interfere with these fine-tuned, very low levels, uh, that may have a long-lasting effect on the development of the child. Uh, 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 that goes for the child, the fetus during pregnancy, but also uh, during uh, infant life where we have this uh, early rise in hormones just after birth that we call mini puberty. Uh, and then a long period of very low hormone activity during childhood. So the levels are very low and of, of endogenous hormones, our own hormones. And they are very important for child development and not only how the, the, the genital develop, but also how the, we grow and how our brains develop and the IQ and neurocognition, etc. So they are extremely important, uh, even at low concentrations. And the things we observe in children when we look, what, what, what are the effects of being exposed to this? Well, what we have witnessed is that many more children are born uh, with Uh, malformations of their genitals. So that is, uh, for instance, it can be cryptorchidism. That is uh, when the testes are not in place in, uh, in the scrotum at birth. Uh, that is becoming more and more prevalent. Then, then, then we have the situation uh, worldwide that later in childhood, uh, when puberty starts, uh, we have witnessed all over the world that, uh, that uh, puberty starts earlier and earlier. When I was young, uh, the average girl would start puberty with breast development at the age of 11. That's in all textbooks still. But what we found in Denmark is that actually age at breast development uh, is uh, is going down. So we start puberty now. The average girl starts at 9.9 years of age, uh, which was much more rare just uh, 20 or 30 years ago. This cannot be explained by Uh, changes in our uh, genes because, I mean, that takes uh, hundreds of years to change the gene pool. So it has to be non-genetic. It has to be something in the environment that makes us mature earlier. And we simply don't know what it is. For instance, we've shown that maternal exposure during pregnancy to, to non-persistent chemicals affect testicular function in adult life in the sons. So 20 years later, after maternal mothers were exposed to chemicals, we can see how that has detrimental effects on the testicular function in their sons. So that points towards that, that these effects of endocrine disruptors on testicular function actually play, takes place already very early in life, in fetal life or in early postnatal life. 
You talk about the mother's exposure while being pregnant and the effects 20 years later in the children. Are there any studies about transgenerational effects? What if, for example, these children want to have children later in life? There is absolutely uh, studies suggesting transgenerational effects. It's not something that uh, I have studied uh, uh, personally, but, but the, uh, there are several studies in animals, but also some human studies suggesting uh, that um, uh, there are epigenetic effects of endocrine disrupting chemicals. That means that you can uh, open or shut down genes by epigenetic modifications, uh, which can then have uh, uh, effects from generation to generation. So you're not altering the genes, but you're altering whether or not they are uh, transcribed by epigenetic modifications. So in theory, uh, we can see effects of uh, on several generations of this exposure. A study in Denmark recently found bisphenol A, which is an endocrine disrupting chemical, in 60% of children's products out of 121 they analyzed. You also work in the, in the country. What is the situation there? Are you more aware of the risks of this issue? Well, I think we have in Denmark, we are a small country, but we have a quite strong tradition to study uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals, especially in children. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's why uh, uh, many studies are conducted in Denmark uh, also on uh, uh, exposure to bisphenol A. And I think the recent study you are referring to that it's present in 60% of products was from a, an organization that tested uh, toys and, and, uh, and, and, all, and found that, uh, uh, that it's present in a very high proportion, even though it's banned in, in plastic baby bottles, etc., it's still around in a very high proportion, which I think is very worrying. And I think, uh, actually, uh, if I should convey a, a, a positive message here, is that when you do regulate, we can actually see that even for bisphenol A, that it does matter to regulate. Uh, so, so we can find for those chemicals where authorities have banned them and, and make, make regulations on on their use in, in for instance, baby bottles, we can actually see that over time, when we look uh, at exposure in, in, for instance, in young men, that it, that it makes the, the exposure is, is, is declining. So that, that's a good thing. It does matter to regulate because we are exposed uh, to a lesser degree from the chemicals that are then banned. Then obviously the problem is that when you regulate some chemicals, other chemicals are used instead for which we don't have any data. And I think that's, that's sort of the, that, that, that underlines the importance of uh, continuous research in this area to figure out what is important and, and, and what is less important. And actually it, it also is, uh, it makes, we need to rethink this whole area about uh, substituting banned chemicals by another chemical uh, as it is there should be very much, very much stricter criteria before we release new chemicals to the market. You talk now about not really knowing about the new chemicals when we substitute these endocrine disrupting ones. The thing is that with all of all of these studies being done now with children, with small babies, we don't really know what is going to happen in the future in terms of long term effects. According to you, what are the risks of not knowing? Well, the, I, I think the, 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 the overarching risk of this is that we 
I mean, the, 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 all the children that are exposed to a, a, a very large number of hundreds and thousands of chemicals, and only some of them are regulated a very small fraction, and only a very small fraction of these, we know how the how they affect the child and its development, and we know even less about how they affect adult uh, uh, function, fertility, for instance. Uh, what we do know is that we have a fertility crisis all over Europe. Uh, we cannot sustain our populations because we have, you need, any woman needs to get on average 2.1 child to sustain the population level. And that's uh, not seen in any countries in Denmark, which I think 1.6 now. So in, in, in one, two or three generations, we will heavily depend on uh, immigration from other countries because we cannot sustain population. And I think that is one of the risks we are running, the long-term risks of being exposed to chemicals that where we don't know which of those uh, actually do have long-lasting effects and, and which of these chemicals do not. Thank you very much for this interview, Dr. Jules, and your interesting take on this actually quite worrying subject. And for our listeners, a friendly reminder that if you enjoy listening to our podcast, you can also subscribe to our newsletter that comes out also on Wednesdays. We'll keep making sure that you're up to date with the latest health news. Don't forget to also check other Euractiv's podcasts, Agri-Food Brief, Tech Brief, and Beyond the Byline. You can listen to them in all your favorite platforms. This is all from us today. Thank you for listening. We also want to hear from you. So if you have something to say, don't hesitate to drop us a line. Our email address is podcast at euractive.com or contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn. This episode was brought to you by Euractive's multimedia team. So special thanks to them. See you next week and stay healthy.